Hey, hey, everybody. It's Nick Kolakowski, and I am back with Noir on the Radio. My guest today is Seamus Heffernan, who is the author of Napalm Hearts. It is a P.I. thriller set in London that goes through many extensive twists and turns. There are dead bodies, or may not be dead bodies. There are tough guys. There are plucky investigators who definitely get in over their head, and it is generally an awesome book. So thanks for being on the show today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. So, as we were just saying before, kind of the, the pre-recorded intro, I, I don't read all that many P.I. novels, and it, it seems that um, a lot of noir and hard-boiled writers, I mean, there is a substantial contingent, obviously, of those who do detective novels, but then there's also kind of the substantial portion who might focus more on the heist or focus on the criminals or whomever. What led you to go down the road to writing a P.I. book. What, what was sort of your initial inspiration to give us this kind of yarn? Well, I think I'm very fortunate um, professionally in my life that uh, I, I've been able to find jobs that pay me to write. Uh, right. You know, I worked in advertising marketing and I worked as a speechwriter and I worked in communications, uh, you know, journalism. Uh, but I always, I always knew that I wanted to, to dig in and write a, 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 a long piece of fiction. And the reason that I wanted to write a detective story, uh, I think I, I got to trace it back to uh, when I was a kid. You know, I just remember staying up late and watching the, uh, the Untouchables and Naked City and uh, Crime Story with uh, with Dennis Farina, and uh, I mean that had a huge impact on me. And even as I was getting older. Uh, you know, and I discovered comic books and graphic novels. I was always drawn to uh, characters like Batman, who I think were more, uh, well, obviously detective-centered, but also more cerebral. Uh, the, uh, the problem is I actually didn't read a whole lot of uh, crime or detective uh, books. I mean, I read some of the classics like, uh, you know, The Big Sleep, uh, For Where Am I Lovely by, uh, by Chandler, and, uh, you know, The Glass Key by, uh, by Hammett. Multi-ball. That's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's just some guys like you read them, like like Rankin, for instance. I mean, it, I mean, they're crime books. Uh, he says making the air quotes listlessly on a podcast. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, he, he's such a great writer. It doesn't even really it doesn't really feel like it. Uh, so I've actually tried to read a bit more of the uh, the genre. But uh, you know, like uh, like a lot of uh, a lot of uh, middle aged white men, I just assumed I could write a detective novel without having any experience or knowledge beforehand, and threw myself with the kind of blind confidence that comes with that <laughs> position. But but I think in your case that this actually helped you, just because I feel that people who are extensive readers of this kind of PI fiction fall way too easily in the tropes, and then the problem becomes you know you're reading the book and then. You know, you, you're seeing these flips 50 to 100 pages out, and I really didn't feel that with yours at all, which I thought was was a really just fantastic thing. The, um, you know, and I, it's it's I feel that it's also I mean it's important to read you know the Maltese Falcon, you know the the Red Harvest, which is my personal favorite uh, Dashiell Hammett book, um, you know, and, and and all of Chandler's works and so on. But I mean, I, I don't think it should necessarily be seen as a Requirement. It, it seems a little bit weird sometimes when people are like, you must absolutely read these five things or like you can't possibly even begin to do this because in your case, obviously, that kind of thing doesn't apply. Um, you mentioned The Untouchables. Have you ever read the graphic novel Torso? Yes. Yeah, the Bendis book. Yeah, that's a great like detective hybrid, you know, horror action thingamabobber. Oh, man. I mean, 
Uh, I used to be really, really into uh, comic books, and uh, every so often I still dip my toe back into uh, <laughs> back into that water to see what's new or interesting. But uh, yeah, like Bendis, man, like he was uh, he was on a roll with a lot of like Jinx was really good too. Oh yeah. And, uh, but yeah, Torso was fantastic. You know, if you're you're listening and you you uh, you haven't read it, uh, Torso is about uh, Elliot Ness, who of course was famous for. Uh, uh, the the Untouchables being the uh, the Treasury agent who uh, <laughs> who's dispatched to deal with Al Capone, uh, but it takes. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Torso is when he's mayor of Cleveland, right? Yeah, he's he's running he's running for mayor. I think it's it's been a couple of years since I read it, but I think he's police commissioner or something, and he's he's running for mayor because at the end he not to spoil too much, but he gets a creepy postcard to the effect of "You have my vote" um, from the, oh, yeah, the person yeah. who may or may yeah. not be the killer. I always, yeah, yeah. I, thought, I thought it was great, and I loved how you know. I mean, it, it, it kind of turned the uh, the the whole uh, you know angelic view we had of the Untouchables on its head there quite a bit because he has to make some tough and uh, occasionally dirty choices. I thought I think Bendis is great, man. Like guys like that, like they're going to be great writers no matter what. Like people are always going to remember him for the great work he did with uh, like like books like House of M with Marvel or all that Spider Man oh, yeah. stuff. His early his early crime stuff uh, is really really good. So yeah, yeah. Don't don't buy my book. Buy his stuff. <laughs> I always I always thought it's funny. I always thought um, that if Kevin Costner ever wanted to sort of step back into that role, that it it would be kind of a fantastic back into. Because to your point, I mean, you know what what you were just saying. It shows this different side of Elliot Ness as he's he hasn't fully started to kind of spiral down the drain yet, but you, you can definitely see, you know, he's starting to gain momentum in some very bad ways. Um, but I don't think that's, that's something that's going to happen as much as my Hollywood fantasies would like it to. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, Ness is an interesting case. I mean, he ended up like a broken down alcoholic, like the guys he used to, his drinking buddies, uh, you know, they used to listen to him tell these stories about his days of daring do in law enforcement. They, they thought he was full of it for the most part. And then it wasn't until afterwards, of course, all this came out and what he'd accomplished before it, uh, it all went, uh, all went wrong for him. So, but, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, it's funny you mentioned Costner cause I actually went back and I rewatched the movie, the, uh, oh gosh, who directed that Mamet wrote the screenplay for it. Brian De Palma. Yeah. Yeah, holds up pretty well. I mean, it's not a perfect movie and it certainly has no basis in like no, <laughs> historical none. facts. But it's, uh, you know, it's a rip, man. It's a great story. Great yarn. Yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, it, it's interesting how Ness ended up sort of broken down. And then also, I, I'm blanking on the name of the FBI agent who hunted down, like, Pretty Boy Floyd and Dillinger and all those guys. But he also ended in a bad way. And I think he he succumbed to alcoholism and committed suicide. It seems that, you know, the, 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 there's all these guys who, you know, everything that they go through in the course of, of solving crime kind of wrecks them a little bit. And, you know, I think that's also kind of a truism that's carried over to fiction in a lot of ways. You have the stereotypical image of the detective who's like, you know, the hard drinking, you know, he, he can barely stand up yet somehow he's going to, you know, slug down another shot of whiskey and go out and solve the crime. When you sat down to write Napalm Hearts, did you, were you, in a headspace where you like kind of wanted to desperately avoid all those kinds of cliches or did you want to figure out if you could do your own take on them? I mean, how do you, when confronted with this sort of massive legacy of the, the PI and detective literature and movies and so on, like how did you approach it? Well, I was a bit glib earlier when talking about how I just kind of blindly threw myself into it. Well, uh, that's how a lot of great novels got started out though. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that if you're going to write, uh, for a genre that you've 
rightly pointed out is you know just a very deep and vast one uh, you know you don't necessarily have to play by all the rules of that uh, genre but you certainly have to kind of respect the rules of the genre so i did make conscious decisions when i sat down to uh, to write that i wanted to avoid certain cliches um you know and because part of the book is based on personal experience oh. uh, and um, yeah, I guess we'll come back to that in a second. We will definitely. You heard that. You know, yeah. Not just a specific time in my life when I was in London and maybe wasn't making great choices. <laughs> and part of uh, Thaddeus's uh, journey here kind of reflects, uh, you know, what I was kind of aspiring to be to kind of turn things around for myself. Huh. That that is intriguing because my next question was actually going to be why London. I mean, there, there there's a grand tradition of of, of British noir and British detectives, but it, it it seemed a very interesting choice. Yeah, because I, uh, well, two reasons. Uh, one, uh, you know, setting is so crucial to uh, to any story. Uh, and London is just a great place to throw uh, a bunch of people you care about and make their lives miserable through fiction. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, because <laughs> you know, everybody knows it. You can, it has that immediacy of recognition uh, and takes a lot of pressure off the, uh, off the reader in that regard. And the second thing is I lived in London for five years, and my last year there was, uh, was tough. And... Hmm. Uh, you know, and while I wasn't a a a, a CD private uh, CD private detective, I certainly uh, remember making a couple of bad choices along the way and had to you know had to step it up and turn things around for myself. Yeah, and I mean you know obviously that that use of of real life is I th I think a lot of writers find that absolutely crucial. I mean it, it, I, I felt that London is also such a great location because you know you 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 can go from you know, the area around like, you know, the Dorchester Hotel and the palace and so on, where it's this sort of ultra rich wonderland. And then you don't need, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good hike, but then, you know, after a while, suddenly you're across a bridge and you're in a place so shady that you're absolutely not a hundred percent positive. You're not going to be able to walk out again without somebody beating you down to within an inch of your life. <laughs> uh, I never quite felt like that. Uh, oh, well, oh yeah, maybe one little, little exaggeration. Like matches when uh, but, uh, no, yeah, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, London is it, it, like a lot of big cities and London is, you know, a world capital. Uh, it's got those extremes of like pure opulence and wealth and privilege. And yeah, like a couple of tube stops over, you're going to be in a lot rougher neighborhood. And I think that's something that, um, I, I tried to address in, in the book because the book is very much, uh, about what it feels like to be the other, like Thaddeus doesn't fit in necessarily because he's mm -hmm. American. But it also explores a bit of class, and I suppose that's speaking a little bit to my own, uh, you know, working class, class warrior background. Yeah. Uh, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, I, I wanted to put Thaddeus in that position where he had to confront not just a, a mystery, but people whose lives largely were free of consequence, and what would happen if consequences arrived on the doorstep. Yeah, I think it's something like this. I mean, because he can navigate kind of freely, you know, within his role between these different strata. I mean, he's, he's kind of the ideal vehicle to illuminate, you know, kind of these, these different people and their attitudes and so on. I mean, it's, it's the great thing about detective fiction is that if you want to go down that particular path, I feel that you can really examine the social strata of like a particular time, like go from the top to the bottom, if you will. No, absolutely. And any crime fiction, you know, worth its salt, is ultimately a story of good and evil. And mm -hmm. if that's the prism that you're working with, 
uh, then you can shine a pretty harsh light on all sorts of inequality or uh, or social justice issues. Yeah, I mean, I was rereading uh, Red Harvest the other day, and it, it, it's amazing how I mean, it, it, it's it's obviously a microcosm or of. 1920s society, but it's incredible how Hammett captures, like, you know, the ultra-rich robber baron types and then goes all the way down to kind of the, the slum level where everything is brutal, and he'll often do it within a couple of pages, but he's so clear and clean. It's amazing. Um, I hadn't read that book in, like, 10 years, and it, it sort of revitalized, like, why I love this genre in a lot of ways. If you uh, yeah, if you like that kind of uh, 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 commentary in your uh, in your crime fiction, you should check out uh, uh, a guy named Sam Weave. Uh, I know mm. Sam; he's a, uh, he's a Vancouver uh, writer. Um, you know, he's not afraid to take on some uh, some heavier social issues. So definitely worth a spin. Cool. Are you um, in terms of approaching the actual writer process? Because a lot of people who listen to this podcast are writers, and they're intensely interested in process. Are you a big outliner or are you kind of a fly by the seat of the pants sort of writer? I mean, you see, you said earlier, you know, kind of it, it made me think maybe you're more on the seat of the pants side of the plane. But uh, you, uh, at the same time, you also strike me as somebody who would be fairly meticulous about plotting stuff out. Is it because I told you I'm wearing a tie? Exactly. Like, yeah. Yeah. yeah you take me more seriously. I understand. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, when I sat down to write the book, I'd actually done like a really detailed, uh, outline. Um, I was thinking, right, you know, this will be a good, you know, this is a great skeleton and I can build from this and, you know, take all the guesswork out of it. And then about halfway through the book, I got very frustrated and just threw, decided <laughs> <laughs> to turn the whole book on its head. So the ha second half of the novel, uh, was pantsed, I think is the term. And the first half was meticulously <laughs> outlined and, uh, and put together. And then I was quite fortunate. It all kind of flew together. Like I was throwing a lot of stuff at the wall mm. and, uh, lucky for me, uh, a lot of it stuck. And I remember very clearly, um, you know, one night it was quite late and I was uh, restless in bed and I was tossing and turning and something popped in my head and I had to jump off and I grabbed my notebook and like eight or nine major plot points came flying out and I just dropped it, went back to sleep next morning. I was flipping through that, <laughs> flipping through the notebook. Holy hell, that, that's it. That's the book right there. And that's how it all, uh, that's how it all came together. That was a good move to grab a notebook. I, I, I find that it, it, it's a really common story where people, you know, you're drifting off to sleep or you snap awake in the middle of the night and you have it. You have the idea that's going to change everything. And then a lot of people say to themselves, oh, I'll remember it in the morning. I'm definitely guilty of this, by the way. And then obviously you don't remember it or you remember it in fragments and then it's, it's completely yep. gone. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. From the after the first couple times I did that, I always start keeping a notebook by my bed. So I mean, it's 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 hats off to you for recording that before you drifted off again. Well, I should point out that I was in grad school at the mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and so I just had papers and books and notes everywhere. <laughs> that so, makes it easier. I, you know, inside one of my, uh, you know, inside I think my. Uh, um, uh, uh, politics of criminology class notebook is the is the second <laughs> half level. <laughs> Um, yeah, and you know what the thing is? They always say, "Oh, you should always carry a notebook." Fact is, man, I mean, you got a small, you got a smartphone, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah, so there's literally no excuse not to be able to to write this down. It pops in your head. I mean, you all smartphones have the notes feature. You know, hell, I mean, you can just tell your phone to open up the voice recorder and just leave a quick message for yourself, and it's going to be there. Yeah. I mean, the the thing, the the rise of smartphones. Actually, it, it was funny because the other day, the thing that I'm working on, I I remembered 
vaguely writing something years before that would fit with a particular scene. And so I went to my bookshelf where I have a lineup of, oh, I'm looking at it right now, probably about 25 notebooks that end right about the time that the iPhone 4 maybe came out. This is this is to your point about kind of, you know, carrying a notebook and then transitioning over to a smartphone. I sort of miss having like a notebook with a pen in it sometimes, but then I realized that in addition to a note-taking feature, my smartphone has all these other interesting apps on it too, and it was a pain in the ass to carry a moleskin or whatever. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um I <laughs> I still do usually uh, I, uh, carry a notebook in my uh, in my carrier bag just in case, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, the fact is that unless you're Stephen King or J.K. Rowling, like all of us have other things that we've got to uh, balance our time and effort against, uh, and so when those moments hit, you got to be ready for it. So um, if you're making excuses for that, then I can't even imagine how you're getting any writing done. Oh yeah, no, totally. I mean, it's it's it's. I I also miss paper though, and so there's a certain tactile thing to paper, which is nice, and and you sort of miss that. But then I realize that you know, looking at these notebooks, probably half of them are waterlogged. You know, a couple of them have taken damage. Yep. I mean, it's I bike home from my office, and so therefore, you know, the, the these things have been subject to like some pretty gnarly rips and accidents over over however many years. Yeah, well, it's like it's like vinyl, right? Everybody loves it in theory until they got to move house a few times, oh, and it's yeah. like give me those threes. Yeah, we live it, it's it's it, we live um, not in a hipster neighborhood of New York City, but we're we're hipster adjacent, and so occasionally when we're walking through our neighborhood, um, my wife and I will find boxes and so on where people have like tossed out vinyl, and it's like it, it's like some sort of flashback to the '70s or something like that. Like people have whole crates of vinyl, brand new vinyl that they put out there, and I'm always amazed that people have built or rebuilt the infrastructure to play records. I mean, I know the sound is great, but it seems like, I mean, you have to be a real audiophile to make that investment. My hat's off to anybody who does that. Yeah, and once you get uh, over 40 anyways, <laughs> you know, between uh, <laughs> we all have a lingering tinnitus from too many loud shows. It's not making that much of a difference <laughs> in the oh, bit that's rate. that's true. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's hilarious, though, how, like, I mean, but it's also, like, kind of a, a, a one-size-fits-all excuse. If you don't hear anything, you just blame it on rock from, like, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the Warp Tour did me in. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you write to music, or are you a writer who like demands complete and total silence in which to compose? Oh no, I always have something on. Uh, there's a, a coffee shop locally that uh, that I go to. I don't mind being around people and racket when I'm trying to write. Yeah. If I'm home here by myself. Uh, I often throw on uh, Netflix and just like movies in the background, mm-hmm. or I can put on music. Um, you know, I, I don't like silence, which comes as absolutely no surprise to anybody who knows me in real life. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I like to talk. I can be loud sometimes, you know, so why wouldn't that translate to my working style? Uh, but no, no, I, uh, I, I think I'd lose my mind if I had to sit in complete uh, isolation and silence. Yeah, I find that, I mean, I, I'm sort of in the same boat with writing where, you know, I, I always enjoy having a soundtrack and stuff like that for copy editing and like line edits and things like that. I, I used to be able to write with music and now it just distracts me. And it's really sort of disheartening because I don't like sitting in silence and you know, I'm forced to do it. And it's, it's, it, it, it kind of drives me a little bit mad. Well, I mean, again, right. I mean, you asked before about uh, planning and pantsing. Um, I, I think you could ask that question to a lot of different writers and, uh, it'd probably be split pretty evenly down the middle 50, 50, who likes it uh, a little noisy and who needs it to be like a, 
Gregorian monastery. Oh yeah, no, I mean Rob Hart, who who writes the um, the Ash McKenna series of novels, which is this great series of um, PI novels set or all around the world. Each book takes place in a different location. He actually puts a, he publishes a um, a song list. He assembles sort of like a soundtrack album before he starts writing, and I'm I'm not sure if that's meant to just sort of explain the mood of the coming book to everybody or if he listens to that on repeat which would definitely drive me crazy but i always thought that was that was cool to kind of you know adjust and edit your music playlist to to whatever you're working on yeah that's like that's interesting that you brought that up because um i actually just found um I was backing up my computer, and I found uh, an old folder from a couple of years ago, which I had all the music that I was listening to oh. uh, at the time, and it was just, it was all over the place, man. Like from Arctic Monkeys to Decemberist to Miles Davis, um, you know. And music comes up a few times in the book, and um, you know, and it it quite often was stuff that I was listening to at the time. Huh. Oh, that's wild. The um, so you did London. Um, are you working on anything now? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I have to have the uh, the second one done by the end of the year. My publisher is going to be putting it out into the world. Oh, you're on uh, the treadmill. Oh man, <laughs> how's that going? Uh, you know, it's funny because um, you know everybody asks, of course. Oh, how's the next book coming? And there's a huge difference between the first and the second one in terms of the first one was a hobby. It was something I was just kind of picking away at and it was just a fun little distraction. And, uh, you know, and then I never thought, well, you know, when you get to the end, you're like, oh, I guess this is okay. And I never thought that anybody was going to read it, let alone somebody was going to say, hey, we will actually pay you money to publish this. Um, And then they said, but now we need you to write another one. (laughs) (laughs) that quickly because momentum is hugely important in this business oh that's another thing you said that a lot of people who are listening are, are writers and are interested interested in the creative process um yeah the creative part's fantastic but uh the publishing business is wild i knew nothing about it oh. i struggle even now to uh, to understand it but it is a business and uh, your uh, your creativity gives you that opportunity but at the end of the day you know if someone takes a chance on you uh, you've got to come through for them because they're taking a huge risk by uh, by taking you on, um, which I now uh, <laughs> now, <laughs> now understand that part uh, because when I signed the contract, I remember thinking, "Oh, thank God, that's over." My publisher's like, "Oh no, this is just all beginning for you now." Oh. Uh, second one, even though I'm I'm largely happy with how it's progressing, I'm about thirty thousand words uh, into the right. uh, the first. Um, you know, now it's not like a fun little hobby. Now it's, you know, now there's expectations. Oh, yeah. um, both either, both from people who read the first one and also um, legally because <laughs> I have to deliver this book. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, in that regard, yeah, it's a slog, you know, because sometimes it doesn't feel fun. Uh, and I think this is a big problem for a lot of writers. You know, one of the things that keeps coming up when I meet people who are writers now, uh, they, they always want to ask, you know, how do you get published? And I said, well, you got to write a book. And I, it's, it's astonishes me how many people are, they don't like that answer. I said, well, I don't have time to write a book. I said, well, that's a crucial first step to yeah, this process. Gotta, they're not going to, people and, aren't just going to give you a contract. You can't just tell a publisher, I have an idea. And they go, absolutely. Here you go. Here's an advance writer up and I'll see you in 50,000 words. <laughs> but, you know, joking aside, the reality is, Everybody has responsibilities. Everybody has obligations. You know, everybody has day jobs at this uh, at this point. You know, yeah. I mean, 
you know, welcome to late stage capitalism. Some of us have two jobs just to keep things. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, if you want to do it, you're just going to have to find time to do it. You know, if you find time to do stuff that's important to you, you know, then this is have to, has to be one of them. So, you know, I always took the approach, you know, it's like going to the gym. And, you know, if you met me in person, you would see that this is a rather <laughs> facetious comparison because I'm not exactly, you know, a huge bulky guy. But, you know, if you care about that, then you're going to carve out a little time every day to do that. So if that's what you're into, go for it. If producing a piece of long form fiction that you would hope to see published is really important to you, then you're just going to have to carve out 30 minutes or an hour a day. And believe me, like, you know, even if it's just a couple hundred words, that starts to add up real fast, man real fast. And I think that, um, um, you know, I was having this conversation with, uh, with a friend of mine, you know, and he's, uh, you know, he, he, he's, he's very well off, very successful in business, you know, could probably buy and sell me six ways to Sunday. <laughs> uh, you know, and he, he's also been picking away at a book for a while and he was asking me different questions, uh, uh about it and process and, and publishing. And I said, man, you just got to finish it. Like, you got to go go for it. But the problem is, if you're a guy like that who's you know very smart and very talented and all in on being an entrepreneur and have proven results from that, you know, it's insanely difficult then to convince yourself, I'm going to sit down and exert a huge amount of time and energy into something that may produce no success whatsoever. I mean, we're, you know, people like that are just hardwired like that. And I totally get it. Sometimes I wish I was hardwired like that. Yeah. But, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you know, for people who are, you know, so-called creatives, you know, we love the creating part, but we don't like coming the gross effect of the, uh, the, the business aspect of it and the fact that there's money involved, that you have to market yourself and you've got to be really aggressive. And it's, I think that's the I think that's the dichotomy. I think that's a struggle for a lot. It's been one for me. Man, I used to work in advertising. And I still <laughs> <this>. <laughs> yeah. The um yeah, no, it's it, it's it's nuts when you when you start off and like you think that you're you know, you sort of exist in this this happy little bubble where you think that, you know, you're gonna write the book and turn it in and then miraculously it's going to appear and it's gonna sell in mass numbers well, some magical marketing gremlin does does all the work for you and then i think it only strikes you later how much of your own effort is kind of involved in the process yeah it's it, it's huge um you know you get your you build a website you work on your social media you know you uh, you, you try to build your mailing list you try to post things you know and then you have these horrible conversations about you know content creation and how to yeah. stay on brand I know. Like, yeah. like, I mean, you and I are actually groaning. And it's disgust. horrible. Oh no! I just like, yeah, no. It's 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 yeah. Say no more. <laughs> both of us, both of us are writers. Mm -hmm. And last time I checked, if we don't do that stuff, no one outside of you know your mom's hot yoga class is going to read your book. Yeah, it's true. I mean, the other thing too about publishing, which always sort of got me, is that. You know, and you're you're undergoing this right now, where you have this deadline pressure, and sometimes the deadline pressure is like insanely intense, and you have to churn something out. And then after you've gone through all this rush and everything else, and they're like, "Oh, it'll come out." You know, you're, you're scheduled for a year and a half from now, because then the rest of the process has to sort of gear up, and there are aspects of that process which are sort of hideously slow. And then when the release date actually gets close, then all of a sudden you're on the treadmill again, and then you've got to do like 25 things because the book is coming out next week. And if you don't do these things, you're going to fail. And then it just, and then it goes slow again while you wait for sales to come in. It's, it's, 
it's it's a roller coaster. It's crazy. I mean, I think to your point, I mean, you have to be creative and a little bit crazy in order to make this happen because if there was guaranteed return or whatever, that would be one thing, but there are no guarantees and it's it's sort of a messy process. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, my dad, for instance, used to uh, make model cars, you oh, know, those yeah. that you'd get the plastic, mm-hmm. you glue them all together. Love that stuff. Those are fun. You know, yeah, but at no point did my dad think, "Oh man, someday people are going to look at these cars and pay me for it." You know, sometimes I think we got to remember that as, as as writers, it always starts out as a hobby. It always starts out as something like, "Oh man, I'd love to do this." Well, do it, yeah. uh, and then all the stuff that happens afterwards comes down to how seriously you want to take it after that. Yeah. I mean, I, I I really think it's important to point out that like the creation of anything is is got to be the goal. After that, you make your decision. You make your decision if you want to push for it to be published, if you want to push for it to get out into the world, if you're trying to make money, that comes down that comes down on decisions you make afterwards. But if you got it in you to, to, to make something, to put word after word until there's a pretty decent story out there, I mean, it doesn't matter if you show it to anybody else. I have to, yeah. you've, 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 put, you've, you've answered that call inside yourself and you've created something. And after that, it's up to you. And I think it's important because, I mean, when, when you approach it from that perspective, what you're creating is unique. I mean, I've, I've talked to a bunch of aspiring writers over the years where, A, they think it's going to be a mass money-making proposition, which always struck me as a little bit strange. But then they say something to the effect of, oh, I analyzed all of Lee Child's books and I figured out how to create the perfect Jack Reacher clone. And it's like, okay, you've just created a Jack Reacher clone that'll join the other billion Jack Reacher clones out there. But that's not... You, it's 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 cynical, you know. And but the, at the same time, I mean, I don't think that just sort of heading out there without that creative drive is is any way to succeed. I mean, I could be wrong though. Maybe there's somebody out there who's managed to formulate cynically like this perfect thing, and they're making tons of money off it. Yeah. Did you, uh, you ever hear that story about Will Smith, where early in his career, he and his agent sat down and did an analysis of all these successful movies, and then he oh, said, yeah. "Oh, right, I'm going to be an action star now." Like, Aliens, so, yeah. So horribly cynical and self-serving about that, and yet here we are, twenty years later, and he's going to be in Men in Black Twelve or something, and you're like, oh well, I guess that all, I guess yeah. that all worked out for him. But it was uh, a great, it was a great list. It was like you know they they realized you know Alien Invasion, Summer Blockbuster, Checkbox, 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 Checkbox. I mean, it's. Yeah. I also feel that movies also are a little bit different. I mean, you look at netflix how they create movies and that's literally an algorithm they're plugging it in and they're like oh people want to see jason bateman freak out as he shoots someone in the head we're going to create ozark the tv show so yeah which is pretty good actually yeah i like it a lot we just finished the second season it's a nice um he's great i mean i joke that it's arrested development but not funny but he's actually a genuinely good creep yeah uh what was that one the gift uh, i don't know if you checked out great movie cool I little see it. Uh, yeah i know of it i haven't seen it uh, it's on netflix well, I don't actually. It's on Canadian Netflix, which I assume you have everything that we have, plus a lot more. So, can I get back to, uh, briefly to the point about like you talk to people who say that they're yeah doing like market analysis. Oh yeah, and trying to figure out how to uh, create. Man, I don't know if I could have a conversation with somebody like that. <laughs> I, I think I'm really dispiriting because I mean, you know, if you want to be a writer. You, just, you should write what, oh my God, this sounds so hallmark, but you got to write what's inside you, man. Like if you sit down and think, oh, okay, so I've analyzed all these successful genre of fiction uh, masterminds and blockbusters, and then I, you know, running this algorithm have discovered how the next 60,000 words will formulate the building block to this empire. 
oh my god, just just go work in the stock market or something. Like, <laughs> well, here's the other. Like you, there are so many other places you can put that and make a lot of money. Please, please, please. Well, here's the other interesting thing about it. So I used to not not so much anymore, but at one point I was I was hanging out with a lot of um, book editors, um, primarily YA editors. I just I fell into this this particular circle of friends for a while, and at that time, this would have been about eight years ago or so. Um, I think it was the Twilight books were the massive hit, and so they were all being hit oh, yeah. by these constant agent queries for sparkly teenage vampires. Basically, everybody pouring in, attempting to do like a Twilight vampire ripoff. But the thing about publishing, and this goes back to what I was saying about like kind of the rhythms of fast and slow. All these editors were thinking two or three years ahead, and so they would joke that you know, even though vampires were hot with the public, they were already thinking to the next thing, which was going to be you know, who knows, like sparkly mermaids who are carnivorous and eat people by the light of the moon or whatever. But the the thing is, is that when you've created that Jack Reacher clone, you're going to send it to an agent who is going to send it to an editor who's been who has not only seen a million versions of that, but they're thinking about the next thing, and I think that the next thing is whatever they see that's like passionate and you know the things that come from all that stuff that we were talking about about creativity and so on it's not going to come from market analysis for something that's already been sort of well trodden yeah no absolutely you know i mean years ago i interviewed uh steve albini the uh the the recording engineer he was in big black and yeah and shellac and you know Here's a guy who could probably be huge in, in music, certainly bigger uh, than uh, what what Shellac is right now. Um, but he he made this point: is that music finds you know music finds its audience, and you can. In, he was trying to explain that you can't really predict what's going to hit big. You can't really predict what's going to stick and what's what's not. I mean, it was only like 20 years ago people were playing with Time Masters, thinking that was going to make them healthy. So I mean, oh, yeah. someone made a lot of effects. It's true. It's funny. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the human race is, is hilarious. Yeah, thank God for that, or else we'd have nothing to write about, Nick. Exactly, exactly, that's true. Yeah. 